Welcome to the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Of course, there aren't really any normal people, but every person has a spirituality, whether plumbers or politicians, firefighters or farmers, entrepreneurs or entertainers. I'm Matthew Bruff, pastor and author, bringing you tips, guidance, and practical advice for how to live out and keep the life in your relationship with God. You can find show notes, books, and more at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. This is episode 28 of the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Today, I've got a fantastic interview with Brian Zand. Brian is a pastor and an author of a whole bunch of books of A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Water to Wine, and his latest book is called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. And we talk a lot about his latest book, and it's just a fascinating read. I really enjoyed reading it uh, and, uh, and would really recommend it really to anyone, whether you would agree with where Brian is coming from or not. I think it's really thought-provoking. And super helpful to start thinking through some of the the things about faith, and uh, particularly sort of our our perception of God, uh, and breaking out of a perception of God as a God of vengeance or retribution that we still do cling to, uh, surprisingly a lot, uh, and, and really focusing on a God of love and what that really means, and how do we read Scripture? Especially that's the part I really liked is how do we read Scripture? through the lens of a God whose love is made known in Jesus Christ. And uh, yeah, so I think Brian is really helpful on that, or at least challenging on that, for sure. Uh, And uh, yeah, this interview is just fantastic. So I think you're going to love it. The end of the interview, it always seems like, I don't know what it is, but sometimes the ends of the interviews end up uh, bringing about some of the best stuff. I mean, I think all of this is good. But that's where we really kind of talk a little bit about spiritual practice and what, uh, you know, what that is like, uh, for, for Brian, um, and, uh, and the importance of prayer and what it means to just sit silently acknowledging the presence of Jesus, how that works, what, what it's like to have mystical encounter, mystical direct experience of God. And, uh, that comes out a little bit toward the end and uh, he may have some slightly surprising things to say about how that comes about and uh, and what resources there might be to help you in your own spiritual life. Uh, so I really think that it, it this is just well worth a listen to the whole thing. Um, again, I want to thank people who are supporting this uh, podcast on Patreon. And you can do that if you would like. Uh, it helps to pay for the uh, costs for hosting the podcast, the, the website hosting for it. And also I'm saving up for new equipment, uh, to, so I don't have to keep borrowing equipment over and over again. So, uh, if you're interested in supporting, you can just go to the regular website. And for this episode, the show notes are at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com slash Brian. And if you head there, there's a bunch of notes about this episode, but down near the bottom, if you scroll down, you'll see a little link that says help support this podcast, and you can just click on that. The other thing you can do from that page is you can subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done that. So there are subscribe links there for iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google, and uh, particularly if you are an iTunes user, if you click on that link, you can head over there and leave a review and a rating for the podcast. That helps others find it. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate uh, those reviews. So any way that you can support or spread the word about this, if you're finding this, these episodes helpful, uh, I would just love that. Uh, also, the show notes are usually really great. And my wife, Cheryl, has been helping out uh, lately the last few episodes. She's been doing the notes for these or helping uh, uh, craft those notes. And so I'm really appreciative to her for uh, doing that. Um, so big thank you to Cheryl for getting the show notes together. Uh, as always, you can also just follow me on social media if you'd like to. On Instagram, that's probably where I'm the most active, but also a little bit on Facebook. And there are links again in the show notes for those. So yeah, if you ever want to be in touch, feel free to reach out on uh, those social media platforms or send me an email. 
Always happy to hear from you. Anyway, let's get on with the interview, and I think you'll enjoy this one. This is Brian Zand. Today I have Brian Zand on the podcast, and it's just a thrill to have you on today, Brian. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah. All the way up here in Canada, I guess I am, huh? Yeah, you are. Um, although I think I have might have more American listeners now than I have Canadian listeners. There's just more of you. Whatever works. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's okay. We we love our, our brothers and sisters to the south of us, that's for sure. Pray for us. <laughs> yeah, we are, and, please, and pray for us too. Please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your latest book, I want to spend a bunch of time talking about your latest book that has just come out. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And uh, it's a bit of a, the title is a bit of a play on Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, yeah. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I have to say, when I first saw the title of the book, I thought, well, of course God is loving. Um, and in some ways, why, why do we need this book? Like, we, we know God's loving. Uh, but then as I read it, I realized that how much we need books like this, because God is still being pictured by so many people as sort of this angry judge yeah, figure. Sure. And I think like people, for me, I kind of feel like people like the idea of a loving God, but for some reason, that idea seems to get disconnected from the God of the Bible. And what I loved about this book, one of the things I loved is you just go right at the scriptures and talk about them and say, well, how does the loving God come out of this? And and where did we get this angry God idea out of this as well? And, you know, how are we misunderstanding things um, in this in this horrible way that we end up with an angry, judgmental kind of God? So I think we do need books like this to re- to remind us of the love of God, but also to show us that that actually does come from Scripture. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote the book for the person that has some instinct that I would probably recognize as coming from the Spirit that God, in fact, is loving. Uh, that God is love, as John dares to say. Uh, yet there is a way of reading the Bible in which God appears to be angry, violent, and retributive. And so I wrote the book for the person that has a high commitment to Scripture. They can't just say, well, you know, just forget the Bible. And yet uh, they have an instinct to embrace the idea that God is love. How do they do that and still hold on to the Scriptures? So, so you know, in the book, I'm wrestling with things like, what about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the violence of the cross? What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? Things like that. So yeah. it's written for people that have a, a serious bent towards Scripture and yet understand that Scripture can allow you to view God as angry, violent, and retributive. How do you pull away from that and still hold to the Scripture? And as, like, as I read through, it became clear, and I'm, I I'd said before we started recording, I'm kind of new to your work, so I'm not familiar with your earlier books, which you which – I'm going to recommend anyway, because I love this book and I'm going to go read the other ones. Um, and, uh, but it became clear, especially towards the end of this book, that this has really been a journey for you. Yes. Um, and so, you know, near the end, you wrote, I was quite content to believe in and preach an angry, violent, retributive God. And I did so for decades successfully. Uh, you can build a big church preaching such a God. Fear is a powerful motivator. Religious people generally like to be told that God is like that, as long as this divine disposition is primarily directed toward other people, which is <laughs> so true. Um, so t- can you tell me a bit about that journey? Like what's led you to the point of writing this particular book at this yeah, particular time? Well, my story is uh, I'm a Jesus freak that grew up. and I, I had a dramatic encounter with Jesus when I was in high school. And just completely unanticipated overnight, I went from being like the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. <laughs> I, this is during this is in the 70s during the Jesus movement. Uh, by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry that was essentially a coffee house music venue for Christian bands and stuff like that. By the time I was 22, it had basically turned into a church that I somehow ended up being the pastor of, but I'd already been doing the work of a pastor before that. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's true. It's not a good idea. I don't recommend it, but right. that's just what happened. And um, the Jesus movement, which was, I think, which was good for me. I mean, it had its flaws and limitations, but its, its central focus on Jesus was a good thing. That led me into the charismatic renewal, which was good until it wasn't. 
but it also kind of led me into uh, aspects of word of faith, religious right, things like that. And at some point, as I as I uh, got into my forties, I just was very discontent with that. I began to be disillusioned by it. Never disillusioned by the Jesus who had so deeply fascinated me as a teenager, but with the kind of Christianity I knew. It seemed weak, watery, thin. Uh, it seemed that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. And so that put me on a search that was quite desperate at times, but it really led me going all the way back to the church fathers. And I began a very intensive reading of the church fathers and uh, other aspects of theology that then eventually became more contemporary. And it led to a profound uh, midlife transition of my own theology which uh, just try doing that with a really big church and, and just start changing your, your theology and your preaching, and you'll find out how challenging that can become. And that's what happened, and it, it was difficult. We lost probably well over a 1,000 people from our church, uh, and yet I have no regrets. It's what needed to happen. Today, I'm, I'm happier being a pastor than I've ever been in my life. I tell people I feel like our church today, Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, is about half the size it was and 10 times better. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I really feel that way. Hmm. And uh, so I guess to sum it up real quick, it's a result of just staying on this journey with Jesus. And when I saw things that ultimately didn't look like Jesus, I was willing to rethink some things, which is what... Um, that's what repentance is all about. Reponse, repent, rethink, reponder. And um, so that's when I really began. I'd written some books earlier, but that's really when I began to write in earnest. And I wrote a book on forgiveness called Unconditional. I wrote a book on really understanding Christianity through an aesthetic lens called Beauty Will Save the World. I wrote a book, which is basically my critique of, of uh, Christian complicity in war and empire called A Farewell to Mars. Then I wrote a book that kind of tells a story of how I got there. And uh, that's Water to Wine. And then Sinners in the Hands of Loving God is really in some ways an answer to questions that have been raised as a result of my previous writings. Like I said earlier, well, what about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence, the cross? You know, that's a violent act. What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? So in, in one sense, you're right. Sinners in the Hands of a Living God is a continuation of previous thought. Okay. Yeah, I think, um, like, I was really taken with some of the the middle chapters. I think the, uh, oh, which one was it? Uh, who Killed Jesus, I think. or mm-hmm. um, But, I and there you really get into, well, what does the cross really mean? Yeah. Um, I think that that's about that. And I, and I wanted to ask what, for you, like, what does the cross because that's kind of the heart of Christianity. What does that reveal to us about sin and, and judgment, but also about love and forgiveness? Wow, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you're right. The cross is the center of Christian faith. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it affects how we read the Bible, because the Bible is a, first of all, it's an enormous text, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's over a thousand pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it was printed like most books, it'd probably be more like 1,500 pages. It's a big book. It covers a vast timeline. And I think anybody that has spent any time with the Bible realizes you can kind of make the Bible say what you want it to say. If you go to the Bible with an agenda, you can, you know, chapter and verse your way to a divine endorsement of your own already established opinion. So if we're going to be more honest with how we read the scripture, we have to find some place to center ourselves. Well, for me, it's going to be the Gospels. It's going to be Jesus. What's the defining moment of Jesus' life? I think it's Jesus upon the cross. I think it's Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hmm. Uh, that would be a very uh, orthodox Christian, classically Christian thing to say, that we center our understanding of all divine revelation in Christ at the cross, uh, but what are we seeing here? Are we see is the cross what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive? That's one way of talking about it that's been talked about more or less over the last 1,000 or 500 years, depending on where you want to date it. 
Or is the cross what God in Christ endures as he forgives? In other words, where is, what is the origin of the violence that we see on Good Friday? It is a hyper-violent act, you know. This, the symbol of Christian faith is the cross. But what we are seeing there is the depiction of a man being tortured to death by a powerful empire. Um, so, so what is the source of this? What is the source of this violence? Another way of saying is, where do we place God on Good Friday? Is God in Caiaphas, demanding a scapegoat, someone to take the blame? Is God to be located in Pilate, that is justifying the so-called justice of an empire that demands a violent execution of someone they have deemed a threat? Or do we find God in Christ? You know, the Apostle Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But I think somewhere along the way, between Paul's penning of that some 2,000 years ago and today, along the way in certain, at least Western traditions, the Catholic Protestant world, that got flipped from God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself to God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. In other words, Jesus dies for us, not for God. Humanity requires the violent execution of Jesus, not the Father. Now, the Father understands that it's inevitable. Once the Son of God enters into our violent system, it's inevitable that he's going to be violently murdered. And yet it didn't take divine foreknowledge to ascertain that. Um, The Greek philosopher Plato, 350 years before Christ, said, hmm, what would happen if a perfectly innocent man came among us? And he said, I'll tell you what will happen. We will scourge him, we will mock him, we will spit upon him, and then we will crucify him. He actually says that. We'll crucify him. That's, that's Plato the prophet right there. Right. So, yes, Jesus' death is a violent execution, but most often the apostles in the book of Acts refers to it as a murder by the principalities and powers. What God in Christ does is forgive that. He's raised on the third day, speaking the first word of the new world, peace be with you. And then we're invited to receive that forgiveness and then enter into this new kingdom, which is an archaic term. So let's say this way, this new government, this new society, this new ordering of human living that is centered around Jesus Christ, who is radically forgiving and uh, and has taught and lived a life of nonviolence. I mean, that's that's just part. And we're just scratching the surface yeah. of what we can see in the cross. Yeah, it's a it's a huge question. No, um, it's, like it's I really like I really like going to the preaching and acts. Like I think that's a really uh, neat way of looking at it because you know they the preaching is you killed this Jesus and yeah. he's risen. Like that actually sounds like really bad news oh, shoot, we were wrong. Like, we killed the wrong guy. If you believe that, oh, no, we just killed God, and now he's risen, he's going to come back, and and vengeance will be his. We're in big trouble. And so then they ask Peter, well, then what shall we do? And he doesn't say, you know, cower in terror. There's nothing you can do. He says, repent and be baptized in yeah. his name. Yes. You know, join him. And he'll and he'll take you in like that. That is revolutionary to me, and uh, and so I really like that move of going to that preaching and realizing, you know, they don't they're they're not talking about judgment. They they almost set up the judgment as an expectation, and then pull the rug out from under their feet and say, oh, actually, he's going to forgive you. I like the fact that you were used revolutionary because it is revolutionary. Yeah. It if we make the crucifixion of Jesus what God requires to be inflicted upon Jesus so that he can gain the capital to forgive us our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die, which is never how the apostles preach the gospel. But if we preach it that way, one of the things that happens is the cross loses its capacity to to critique the principalities and powers. Mm -hmm. It becomes merely a means by which the individual can receive personal forgiveness and a ticket to heaven and then the principalities and powers go free. Rather, if we see the cross as the violent aspect of the cross, as coming from not only humanity, but coming from our, our best institutions, mm-hmm. coming from religion in its highest form, 
coming from uh, law and government in its highest form. And yet these systems of religion and law and government, and I could say economics as I can talk about Herod, um, they would say that what they did to Jesus on Good Friday, if you press them on, they say, well, we were acting according to wisdom and justice. But the cross seen in the light of resurrection critiques all of that and says, no, you are acting according to your own self-interest, preserving your own power. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that at the cross, the principalities and powers were shamed. You know, cross, the crucifixion was a shameful death. I mean, it was part of why the Romans went to the effort to crucify certain people is to heap shame upon them. But Paul says, no, that shame didn't land upon Jesus, but it landed upon the principalities and powers. And so the the cross is many things. It's many things, but it also is a lens by which we can look at humanity as how civilization, as it's been arranged from the beginning, as so distorted that it is capable of the greatest sin and crime imaginable, that is the murder of God. And yet the surprise is, that God doesn't respond to that with vengeance and retribution. He responds to it on the cross with forgiveness. And then on Easter Sunday in resurrection, his word is peace be with you. And then he commissions his disciples to go into the world with a gospel of forgiveness, not a gospel of vengeance. So my all time favorite um, theological sentence it's really an adaptation that comes from Hans Urs von Balthasar, but I'll say it this way, but it's, it's rooted in Hans Urs von Balthasar, great uh, Catholic Swiss theologian of the 20th century. Which he is also said, a great name for somebody. Oh, what a, you know, <laughs> my, my ancestry is Swiss. Zond is a Swiss name. And I've got five, almost six grandchildren now. And I keep telling my kids, how about a Hans Urs von Balthasar Zond? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so far, I haven't got one. But anyway, Hans Urs von Balthasar theologian with the greatest name ever, says, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Hmm. In other words, at the cross, we see a God that would rather die than kill his enemies, and whose response to sin is to forgive it, whose response to violence is to absorb it and recycle it into something other. Hmm. It gives humanity... Uh, the capacity to reorganize ourselves. Instead of being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, we can now see the cross as where Jesus refounds the world and we can be organized around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. That's revolutionary. That's radical. But that's what the gospel is. Hmm. Yeah, I preachers will, uh, and, and you address this, and this is like, I think these are the two pages that had my most highlights, um, <laughs> was right around uh, talking about deserving individuals, deserving punishment because of sin. And I, that's, I, you didn't use those exact words, um, but uh, that's in that Who Killed Jesus chapter. And you write that we actually deserve love and healing rather than deserving. Well, this, this, is, this is an example. So I want to know what you mean by that. <laughs> well, this is an example of theological systems gone awry. It's a very common stock and trade expression among preachers to say that Jesus took on the cross what we, what we deserve. Well, like took our place on the cross, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that. I remember, uh, you're Canadian, I remember being in Vancouver, British Columbia, and walking down the street with a theologian friend of mine talking about how absurd that is. And there was a little girl walking with her mom in front of us. And I pointed that little girl and I said, uh, she was like maybe eight years old. I said, so, you, so you're going to tell me, he, didn't, he doesn't believe this theology, but according to that theology, someone can point at that little girl and say, she deserves to be nailed to a tree and tortured to death. Well, that's absurd. That is the result of a theological system by which you painted yourself into a horrific corner. And you just need to take a breath and go, that can't be right. It's not right. People do not deserve to be tortured to death. Uh, What Jesus endured upon the cross 
is a snapshot in the most dramatic moment in human history of where our social structures apart from God lead us. They lead us to do things like that. But to say that any given individual or every given individual deserves that, that's to turn God into a monstrosity. That is completely misrepresenting who the God that Jesus called Abba is. And so, no, the cross is not what we deserve. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he exposes how evil our system is. But it's not what individuals deserve. In other words, God does not need a violent act in order to forgive. That's, what, that's the way we often think about it. So, so that our concept of justice is often very retributive. That it is, it is simply the idea that, that people must be punished, and that's, that's that, and that satisfies justice. So I'll have people say to me, well, no, God had, God had to require the violent death, the torture and execution of Jesus to satisfy justice. I just say, now, wait a minute. God had to do something to satisfy justice. Well, who's in charge here? Is God a, is God a penultimate deity? Who says, you know, I'm loving and kind and I'd love, I'd love to forgive you, but I got to satisfy justice. And that goddess is going to demand blood. I mean, you really worked yourself into a corner when you start saying that. No, we are the ones who mistake violent retribution as justice. The only thing that counts for justice in the eyes of God is to restore things to their original intent. So in other words, God's, God's justice is always restorative. We are so deeply plagued by an obsession with violent retribution that then we often project that upon God and say, God must be like us. No, God is wholly different. He is other. And that's what Jesus reveals at the cross. That's why I say at the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Yeah, I I think like I feel like deserve is kind of a slippery word, too, because I sometimes wonder, well, if we do, we do we really deserve forgiveness? Because then is it right? Like. It, it, does yeah, that kind think, of undo grace not to use right it's it's maybe not the best word but people use it and i think you were trying yeah. to point out you know how are people really hearing this they're hearing it as though you know you deserve I, to I be slaughtered on and tortured like that's not mm-hmm. right but uh but at the same time grace is free and and forgiveness is just given even though we do do all kinds of things that are not very good things. People um, in right? their ontological essence are image-bearing creatures. Right. They're in the image of God. Right. What should be our basic posture toward our fellow image-bearers? To love them. And so if you want to say deserve, if I use that language, maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. But I'm just saying yeah. uh, another way of saying it is uh, whatever we mean by original sin, whatever we mean by that, Original sin is predated by original blessing. Mm-hmm. God still looks upon a creation that is crowned with image-bearing creatures and says it's good. It's very good. Right. The other and thing too is that, sin shouldn't eclipse that. Yeah, like we can remind ourselves of like prevenient grace. Like God's grace mm-hmm. comes first. Like yeah. God doesn't even need us to sin to to love us. You know, it's not as though God's waiting around. Okay, now they're going to mess up. Oh, I better send my son and kill him. God loves us before all of that. Um, And another move I loved in the book too, it was almost like an argument against, you know, a reading of the Bible that has, okay, we've got this angry God at the beginning that does a whole bunch of judgment and vengeance. And then we have a little bit of love with Jesus somewhere here in the middle. And then at the end, we get an angry God again in Revelation. And and so I found your book helpful in kind of just even pointing that out that we've that we've, we've set that up as a way of reading the Bible instead of seeing that, like, I liked your phrase that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and then you, Jesus, it's the lens by which we see the the other extremes that are in scripture, I guess. I I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So what we have people do is uh, we've got things flipped. We have many, uh, at least certain kinds of preachers in America think that the book of Revelation is very clear and unambiguous, and the Sermon on the Mount is just hopelessly confused, and we can't make heads or tails of it. <laughs> well, I think that's reflecting their own agenda there. <laughs> Maybe the other way around. I don't know. Right, exactly. um, yeah, I, actually, I, I, 
I w- I'd love to ask you about Revelation. I mean, we could have like an entire I, I, three I, hours on that. Um, but uh, Revelation is just one of those books that I think people are really confused by. And myself as a pastor and a preacher, you know, I get scared to preach on it and scared to lead a Bible study on it. Um, and, you know, your your contention is, you know, the whole thing is symbolic and or the whole thing is symbol or full of symbol. But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And I, I found that part of the book helpful and also challenging as a pastor and preacher to think, maybe I should be talking about this more. Well, you should. Uh, <laughs> Good. Okay, great. We'll do it now. If you don't, uh, crazy, abusive, inappropriate, misused versions of the book of Revelation are just ubiquitous in our culture. And people are going to pick it up. And so uh, even, you know, you think, well, I don't preach that kind of Looney Tune stuff in my church. It doesn't matter. They're going to pick it up. The virus is out there. And so you're going to have to have some an immunization program. All right. So what is the book of Revelation? Well, it's something else. The book of Revelation is, and the simplest way I can say it is, it is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. It is using the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature, which we're not familiar with. That throws us off a little bit. Mm -hmm. It is laden with symbol. Every image in the book, every image, and it's a book full of images. I've never bothered to actually go through and count how many. One of these days I'm going to do it. But every image is symbolic. So that you cannot say, for example, if, if somebody, somebody says, well, well, I believe that Jesus is going to come back literally on a flying white horse with literally a sword coming out of his mouth so that he can literally kill 200 million people. I said, all right, you believe that's literal. I said, do you also literally believe that Jesus is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns with its throat slit? Well, no, that's, that's symbolic. I said, well, you don't get to pick and choose. You know, I could list all of the images in the book of Revelation. There must be over 100. And people could go through it and they could check a box, uh, literal or symbolic. And they would go through it and they would go back and see, let's see, uh, a dragon with seven heads and ten horns coming up out of the sea, like something out of a Godzilla movie. Yeah, I think that's symbolic. All right. But then they see other things and they go, uh, a river of blood all the way up to the horse. I don't know, I think that's literal. And then at the end of it, it's going to say, explain your system. Right. Well, I mean, there is no system. People just simply picking and choosing. One way of th- talking about the book of Revelation is that it is an extremely elaborate uh, prophetic political cartoon. Hmm. So if, if, you know, even in Canada, you're going to get this, right? So if... So if someone has, if you see a political cartoon and it's got uh, a donkey and an elephant and they're standing on their hind legs, they're wearing boxing gloves and they're just, you know, really beating the daylights out of each other. Well, I mean, even in Canada, we go, okay, that's, that's a commentary on the American political situation, Democrats, Republicans, all that. Right. The Canadian in the cartoon is drinking Tim Horton's coffee <laughs> and just kind of going, okay, we could just, let's just get along. That's, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but imagine now, imagine someone 2000 years from now in yeah. the year 4,017 that, uh, and, and, and the English language that's spoken today doesn't, hasn't been spoken for a thousand years. Uh, what, what this person knows about the United States, uh, they read in a paragraph in a history class, their sophomore year in college, uh, they've never heard of Democrat or Republic, and they don't know any of that stuff. And you show them this picture, and you say, what does this mean? Well, they, they, can, they can read into it any meaning they want. The odds of them actually getting it right mm-hmm. are extraordinarily slim. What John the Revelator is doing is he is piling symbol upon symbol to show how the kingdom of Christ is destined to triumph over the Roman Empire and 
thus all empires. There is a sense in which the book of Revelation is as apropos for Americans as any book in the Bible right now. It is a book that was in its original context was written as a warning to Christians living in the Roman Empire. They were not particularly being persecuted at this time. I think part of what John is doing is he is retelling the climactic events of the 60s and the 70s. I don't mean the 1960s and 70s. I mean the 60s. The actual 60s and 70s, yeah. And he is giving a prophetic interpretation of what happened. And he's reminding them, even though things may have kind of calmed down now and you're feeling at home in the empire, remember, at its heart, this thing is a beast. And you cannot pledge ultimate allegiance to Rome because it's a beast. You've pledged your allegiance to a completely different kind of kingdom that is not beastly, but it's lamb-like. And if we can learn to read the book of Revelation, not as a foretelling of geopolitical events 2,000 years in advance, but a prophetic critique of what was going on in their own time, then we learn that the book of Revelation is not written to us, but it is for us. It's not written about us, but we can very easily take the lessons from it and apply it to our own situation, because in that sense, it's extraordinarily timely. Right. I knew a pastor um, who used to say he refused to believe that the book of Revelation meant nothing to the people it was written to. Which, would have, um, which of course, would be the case the way the dispensationalists interpret it. Yeah. So, um, and the same thing, you know, people reading the book of Revelation a thousand years ago, um, you know, were also probably freaking, about, freaking out about the end of the world. And then it didn't happen. And I've literally read the sermons that were preached around that time. Right. And then later on, I read some of the sermons of like um, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a... Mm-hmm. Well, he was a voice that helped rally for the Crusades, and he had it all figured out. And I can't remember, 666 had something to do with the so many, it, it, was, it involved Muhammad and Muhammad's birth date. And, you know, it, it's just as crazy as the things that happen today. And there, there was something really helpful about reading exposition on the book of Revelation from a, a thousand or 800 years ago. And you see how re- ridiculous their interpretations well you can do the same thing right now but just reading 50 year old (laughs) interpretations of the book of revelation all right maybe we need to stop viewing it as a foretelling rather it was a current critique Mm. of the roman empire calling christians to embody that other kingdom that gets depicted in all kinds of ways including the new jerusalem etc right now um in terms of like in terms of the end, like does it have anything to say about sort of where things are going or where things are heading? It, like, does it, doesn't, it, have a, it doesn't have a prediction okay. of you know when. What it does is it casts a vision of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of Christ. Okay. How long that plays out, I have no idea. Okay. Um, I don't think even though I don't think that even when we have Jesus depicted in Revelation 19 as returning that John the Revelator primarily has in mind what we would call second coming or parousia. I think what he's really depicting primarily is the ongoing triumph of the kingdom of Christ. So in that picture, he's, he's, he, Christ is shown as coming from the heavens, riding a white horse, um, and, and he... He says he's king of kings and lord of lords. He even says he writes on him, you know, he's the word of God because he has this written on his thigh. Uh, and then with with a sword in his, and he's already, he's already covered in blood, his own blood, before the battle begins. And there's this sword that comes out of his mouth. And he slays 200 million people, which was roughly what they understood to be the population of the world at that time. I think John is using very creative language to say, I believe that Christ through his word is going to triumph Hmm. over all the nations and over the whole world. And so I say, okay, yeah, I'm one of those that have been slain by the sword that proceeds from Jesus' mouth and then raised to newness of life to participate with him in the ongoing process of establishing the new Jerusalem as the alternative to the empires of the beasts. See, that's kind of awesome because we have fire. Yeah. because we have no issue 
with um, with death and resurrection imagery uh, that that Paul uses in Romans, Corinthians, where he'll talk about our new life, where we participate in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. We die to our old life, or raised to a new. But I hadn't really heard that in the context of maybe that's what is also going on in in this with this apocalyptic imagery in Revelation. I think that's I think that's really interesting to think about that. Yeah. So I definitely have to now go do a Bible study on it with my people and see what other people the, think. The and best book, I think, out there great. on the book of Revelation is Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael J. Gorman. Yeah. That's a great book. And I think that was referenced in your book, too. Yeah, it is. I think, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll have to go check that out for sure. I'm going to shift gears a bit because otherwise great. we'll end up kind of running out of time. And uh, toward the end of your book as well, um, and you mentioned some of these theologians like uh, Balthazar, uh, Henry Nowen, Hauerwas, and you said it wasn't any of them that led me away from an angry God theology. It was mostly mystical experiences in prayer as I learned to directly experience the presence of God in contemplative prayer or sitting with Jesus. As I describe it, I have come to know God as love and light. So I'd love to hear more about uh, what led you toward contemporary contempl- contemplative prayer or learning contemplative prayer, and then what impact has, has that had on your life? Yeah, much of the book is in an argumentative format. Mm-hmm. I don't mean in tone or demeanor. I don't think it's that, but that is the approach I'm taking as one that is making a case in an argument. Toward the end, though, where I began to speak about mystical experiences, I'm, not, I'm no longer arguing. Uh, when it comes to mystical experiences, I can testify, and you can believe or not, but I can't argue because it can't, I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. I'm just going to testify. Well, this has been part of my ongoing journey, um, and I, I, I really began to discuss. I, called it, I just called it sitting with Jesus, and I sort of just intuitively began to, to I don't know, wander into this practice where I had a, a, a set of, I have a morning liturgy that I follow okay. that is a track of formative prayer. But then I began to, in the middle of that time, after praying a liturgy, after offering petition and intercession, I just learned to sit silently, acknowledging the presence of Jesus, uh, not looking for anything to happen, no longer using words. I've used all of my words. To, to acknowledge that Christ is present, and I would sit in his presence, not looking for anything to happen, not trying to make anything happen, just being with Jesus. But then over time, sometimes, occasionally, rarely, but occasionally, things would happen. Mm-hmm. And I would step into what I would call is genuinely a mystical experience. And by mystical, I don't mean goofy or strange or something off of black mirror or twilight zone right whether i mean mystical in the sense of a direct experience of god this i cannot prove i can simply report and what what my experience though has in common with others who've reported similar things really over the history of the church is that the overwhelming sense that when i would experience these things what was dominant was the love of God, that I was in the presence of one who, as John dared to say, is love, yeah. which we understand the attributes of God. And yet when we talk about love, I don't know that we're talking about an attribute as much as we're talking about an essence. And uh, I, I believe, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm quite orthodox in my, in my doctrine. In fact, ultimately, I think I'm a conservative because of the attention I pay to the patristics and things like this, but I'm very orthodox in my, you know, doctrine of the Trinity and all of that. So, so I believe in a God that, that gives personal expression through the enfleshment of his logos. I believe in Jesus and all of that. And yet I, I understand why John would be moved to say, God is love. Mm-hmm. And those that love know God. Uh, I think that's a daring move for John to make, and yet he dares to make it. And I, I actually tell this story, and I don't know that it's—I don't know that it does anything in the book. I don't know if it moves anybody, but there was a moment 
when I, and usually when I'm sitting with Jesus, I don't usually say anything. There's no words, but I did say this. I was sitting with Jesus and I began to have this sense of the awareness of the presence of God and that God is love. And I said out loud, I said, God, I don't believe you torture people forever. <laughs> I just started to laugh and I felt as if, um, I was not alone in my laughter. There was something so absurd and ludicrous in that moment that it just had to be regarded as preposterous enough that it would elicit laughter. Uh, now, again, I'm not a universalist. If you, you read the book, chapter 6 talks about hell, and, and I believe there's post-mortem judgment. Uh, but, the, I, that, but that you would turn hell, an idea of Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead, into God personally operating in eternal torture chamber, that is the worst possible way of talking about what the Bible might mean by Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I like to, you had a short reference to the great divorce in there from C.S. Lewis, which I think is another, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, it's actually probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book, mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan of his, uh, yeah. love his books. Um but uh, I think that's really shaped sort of even just giving permission to kind of say, well, you know, there are different ways of thinking about this stuff. Right. Um, and even C.S. Lewis, who, you know, people love going to C.S. Lewis with the with he's got the answer for everything, which I don't think he did necessarily. But um, but people love turning to him. And I, I, but even he took an imaginative view at, you know, what what might hell be, what might heaven be. Um and uh, what what is there after this life? It was, it was interesting. Yeah. He was never a systematic theologian. No, that's true. And the problem with being a systematic theologian is you're prone to paint yourself into corners and end up defending something that, that instinctually you really don't want to defend, but your system demands it of you. So as one who just said, I'm never going to bother with trying to concoct a theological system, it gave him greater freedom. Sure play around with imagination and things like that. And I think often that is a more helpful way forward in some of yeah. these mysteries. Well, especially because the Bible is not a systematic theology. No, of course so, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's the book that God decided to give us. Right. So, yeah. you know, if God wanted us to, it, I, it's, I'm it's, all for systematic theology. I think they're helpful, but. Of, of memoir and narrative and history and poem and song that somehow all gets compiled into one thing that is capable of culminating in a great single message that has to do with Jesus, but it's not a systematic theology. Right. And even just the simple fact that we have four Gospels and not one should yeah. tell us something about... And, and that the, the church had the wisdom to resist the temptation to turn them into one. And there, there was pressure to do that. There were oh, people yeah, that yeah. wanted to come up with a harmonized single Gospel, and they said, nope, we got four and they don't all completely agree, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, just going back to the idea of prayer and sitting with Jesus, which I think is is really wonderful. Um, and I think there's a mystery there, sort of this idea that, okay, and I'm experiencing God as love. There's something that we can't really, it, it's not going to be in an argument, in a, in a set of propositions, right? Yeah. It's, it's an encounter, and that encounter is primarily marked by love. Um, I, I don't want people to necessarily miss that. And I wonder what you might say to someone who struggles with prayer and maybe at the same time is struggling with, with guilt or struggling with, with how they see God. You know, maybe they, maybe they do see, have always kind of seen God as yeah. upset with them or, you know, but they've also have trouble with this idea of, well, I don't know, how do I, what, what do I do to sit with Jesus and, and actually experience that as love and not experience it as, you know, a heartbreak or a guilt or a, I'm, I'm, I'm not enough or that kind of thing. Well, you've, you've now led me into what is probably my favorite subject. And, and in some ways what I'm maybe, well, I don't know, I don't know if I'm best known for this, but I'm quite known for uh, my prayer schools where I teach people how to pray. Uh, the problem is it takes me about four to five hours to do it. I can't do it in a few moments. About uh, but, six minutes but, maybe. But, but that's yeah. that's the point of, of, first of all, 
having some liturgical structure to your praying. The primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do. Prayer is not a means of harnessing omnipotence. It's not a means of God management. Now, there is a place for intercession and petition, yet the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. Toward that end, we cannot trust ourselves to do all of our own praying. Rather, we must entrust much of our praying to traditions that are wiser than we are. Oh, there's going to be a bunch of people who are freaking out at this that you're saying. but If all I ever do is pray my own prayers, then I can never get better than I am. And greedy people pray greedy prayers. Angry people pray angry prayers. Selfish people pray selfish prayers, etc. So what I need then are prayers that are tested by time, vetted by the church, that are a uh, embodiment of wisdom. And I learned to pray those kind of prayers so that they might form me and then help me bring me into the presence of God. Now, prayer from the heart always remains at the heart of prayer. I'm not taking that away from people, but I'm saying before you arrive at this Holy of Holies, you may need to go, no, not may, you do need to go through some practices of formation day by day. So, uh, and if people say, well, I don't like liturgy, liturgy's dead. I say, that's a category mistake. Liturgy is neither dead nor alive. Liturgy is either true or false. Either we are praying and saying something that is true about God or false. What's alive or dead is the person praying. Now, if you can get a live person praying a true liturgy, that's where the potential for positive transformation takes place. And if somebody says, well, I still, I, still don't, I just don't like liturgy, I say, well, you know what? You already have one. Let me hear you pray a couple of times. Let me hear how you pray. I'll write your liturgy down. I'll say, okay, here's your liturgy. Here's what you pray. It's not a very good liturgy. I would like to give you a better one. And uh, so I think, uh, I think most evangelicals uh, have been given an intolerable burden, and that is they have been told to pray, but they don't know how to pray. They don't know what to pray, and they're left to their own devices, and hence they don't pray very well, and then they kind of know it, so prayer becomes a cesspool of guilt that they kind of don't want to think about, and it's just, but they know they should pray, and it's this vicious cycle they can't get out of. A well-crafted liturgy of prayer can save people from that whole mess. And that's, that's what I'm interested in and doing in prayer school is to help people with that. Hmm. So uh, where can, uh, where can people go uh, to learn more or, or where can people go for a well-crafted liturgy or to learn more about uh, what, you, what you think people ought to learn about prayer? Well, you know, it depends on what tradition you're in, but if you're interested in learning from me, uh, you know, I do these prayer schools and I'm doing one in Sanford. I just got done doing one in Indianapolis. I do, I'm doing one. In, I'll be in Toronto. I don't think that's open to the public, but I'm doing one for all of the BIC pastors, okay. which, you know, brethren, well, it's no longer brethren. They changed it. You know, it's okay. being Christ. Cause they're going to let the sisters in that, I guess too. <laughs> but, right. uh, so, so, you know, if you don't think about the historic brethren in Christ denomination, they are very low church, very not liturgical. Yeah. And yet, they recognize this as a deficiency. Uh, so anyway, I don't know what to tell you other than, I mean, it sounds like I'm just you know promoting what I do, but that's that's not the point at all. I'm just, my book, my book, Water to Wine, talks about this. Sure, uh, but if you don't if you don't learn it from me, you need to learn it somewhere. But it's not really something that you probably can do completely on your own. That's right. kind of the point. Uh, for example, at the end of Acts chapter two with the birth of the church, we're told they dedicated themselves to four things, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to, well, King James translated it prayer. And then King, New King James follows suit. That's not what it says in the text, and no new translation translates it that way. It says the prayers, definite article the, plural noun prayers. But notice the difference between these two statements. Devote yourself to prayer. Well, that's, that's like a, abstract admonition that is vague and you think, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. If I say, devote yourself to the prayers, 
Yeah, wow. What prayers? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Here, here are a collection of prayers you should devote yourself to. So I teach people when you can't pray, at least say your prayers. Because saying your prayers, that is trusting a well-crafted liturgy, can carry you through those doldrums when you have lost capacity to pray on your own, which is the experience of every serious seeker of God. Every person goes through that time where there doesn't seem to be any real life or vibrancy in their prayer life. That's when a well-crafted liturgy can carry you through that period of time and bring you safe to the other side. And I, like, I just want to make clear for people that when you're talking about liturgy, um, some people just hear like, oh, that's the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, and that's a mass. Like, that, that's what they think of. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not an Anglican. Right, right. Uh, I'm, I'm a, so this I can be like in your home, right? This is in your home or... Well, first of all, liturgy is a, prayer, is, a, is a Bible word. It's a New Testament word. Liturgy is an anglicized Greek word, liturgeo, that we find in the New Testament. So it's, it's a, you know, if that gives license to some people, it's a Bible word. Yeah, you're preaching from the Bible now. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's really good. I, and I, I, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you kind of go to these, these ordered forms um, that I kind of drift in and out of. And I know myself, I need reminders. Um, Presbyterians, I'm a Presbyterian and we, we kind of have voluntary use. So of, of, you know, worship books that we may have. Yeah. Um, so I need reminders sometimes that, you know, it's, it's a blessing to be in a free worship tradition, mm-hmm. but, but I have my own biases that I'll just fall into that become my liturgy. And I need the reminder to kind of go into the depths of, of what other people write as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and seek that, that depth there and also learn from it and be formed by it. My that's, part, that's part of my our community too, right? Of using the structures of prayer books has been that it is not uh, suppressed my own freedom in prayer, but has enhanced it. Yeah, it's like you know, if you wanna if you wanna have your improvisational, extemporaneous third verse guitar solo and be good at it, it might be worth your while to learn some scales. And so, it's the scales don't take away freedom of expression, they in fact enhance it. Yeah. I remember the first time I, I had gone back to our uh, old book of common order for the Presbyterian church in Canada and mm-hmm. looked at some prayers that was written in the 1950s or sixties. And I was looking for some prayers of confession. And some of the ones that we currently have are kind of, I just found them a little weak and I yeah. went back to those and I thought, wow, there's, there's some really great depth here. Like someone, someone really, wrote this prayer. Like they, they were praying this prayer. They felt this prayer. So, and I adapted it a little bit, um, you know, just some language issues that, you know, things that we said in the 1950s and don't say anymore. Um, and updated that a bit, used it in worship a couple of times. And I had two or three people come after, come, come to me and say, where's that? Like, I need a copy of that prayer. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. I've had the same experience. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so what I'm doing is, well, they're right here, and I'm printing them up for you and show you how to use this. And that's what I'm doing. I think it's the best thing I do as a pastor. Oh, that's awesome. I don't mean it's the most sensational. I don't mean it's the – I mean, at a a pastoral level, the best thing I do is teach people how to pray. Wow. Okay, this is is maybe a greater challenge to me than than even some of the things that you wrote about um, or the Revelation Bible study potential, but maybe getting back into some of the teaching around prayer um, is an important thing too. And hopefully people who are listening can can take that away too. Uh, Anything else that you, any parting words you want to let anyone know about? Um, Really, if I'm going to sum up the book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, I would say this is the good news, that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we knew. Now we do. And that's that's the best news, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, where can people find you online or find your books? You just Google Brian Zahn. I'm the only one. I'm real easy to find that way. And I'm on, you know, I have a blog site, got a church. I tweet down then. I've got Facebook. I've got all that stuff. And just, you know, just search Brian Zahn. I'm easy to find. Sure. I will, uh, I'll put a link to your website and your books from uh, the show notes for this. So thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed the conversation. Today. Thank you. I had a good time. All right. I hope you found today's episode helpful. 
Don't forget to check out the show notes at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. There you can sign up to get the free short guide called Six Tips to Get Consistent in Connecting with God. And when you do that, you'll also get the latest updates and news from the blog, plus book announcements and anything else I may be working on. So head over to spiritualityfornormalpeople.com and sign up. Thanks for listening today and take care.